0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is Mehdi Sanglaji. I'm um, a host with um, New Books Network uh, in Middle Eastern, New uh, New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. And uh, today I'm uh, very pleased and honored to have Professor Asif Fayyad here. Professor Asaf is a professor of sociology and Catherine and Bruce Bastian, professor of global and transnational studies at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, which is a great name for a, an academic uh, space, I guess. Uh, he's the author of Making, Islamic, M- Making Islam Democratic, Social Movements and the Post-Islamist Turn, as well as uh, Revolution Without Revolutionaries, Making Sense of the Arab Springs, and a few dozen other books and uh, many, many more interesting articles. Professor, welcome.
0: Thank you so much. Uh, I'm glad to
1: be here. Thank you. So, Professor, um, uh, you don't need introduction for the people in the know, but uh, I know uh, personally that you have been around you have lived in iran you've lived in <laughs> <laughs> which, which people, people call west asia <laughs> and then you've been uh, living in um, north africa and europe and north america that must be uh, pretty, pretty cool uh, way of gathering a lot of information about social sciences. Uh, <laughs> could you go ahead and like introduce yourself a little bit to the people who might who may not know you?
0: Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. I have been <laughs> around, as you say, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I I was born and uh, raised, of course, in Iran. Uh, initially, in a very small village. Um, Uh, close to Tehran 60 miles and um, then we didn't have a school there uh, the extent that uh, we had to move to the city of Tehran so I did my uh, high school there and then my undergraduate uh, in politics uh, in Tehran and uh, so there was an opportunity for more to go abroad Uh, so I went to England to study there and when I finished my PhD I went to the United States UC Berkeley, I was a postdoc there, but uh, I always wanted to go back, uh, of course, back to Iran uh, primarily, uh, but at least to be in the region, but uh, Iran was not possible uh, in, a, in a way. It, it was during the war, my parents advised me to wait a bit. Uh, so instead, uh, I went to Egypt. You, you would have been and, um, conscripted, right? And, uh, you were no, when to not, yeah. I'm not, I'm not. <laughs> no no actually not actually not because uh, oh, cool. uh, yeah had been exempted uh, you know they yeah so you know certain age groups in fact they exempted and i was part of it so it wasn't transcription <laughs> um, <but, laughs> so yeah and uh, uh, so i went to egypt uh, and I uh, Yeah, I was just wonderful for, about 16, 17 years uh, with the post. I went there actually for two years only, but I just loved it. I stayed there. Um, But after that, then I went to Holland. Uh, I was um, the director of uh, International Institute for the Study of Islam in the Modern World called ISIM, And I basically studied, um, uh, you know, the contemporary social, political, and uh, intellectual movements and uh, trends in the Muslim majority societies and uh, and Muslim communities in uh, in the West. So and I was there until 2010, and after that uh, we moved to the United States at the University of uh, Illinois, where I am. So I've been around. You're right. So <laughs> I've taught in you know different. Uh, different, uh, you know, um, academic cultures. And, uh, and it's been, as you say, it's been very wonderful um, to have all these uh, experiences.
1: I personally know that uh, in Egypt, uh, let's uh, have a shout out to a great professor who passed uh, recently, Professor Mona Baza, whom I had the pleasure and honor of knowing. Uh, and uh, I believe uh, she was a friend of yours.
0: Absolutely, yeah, she was a friend and uh, colleague, and uh, she was a sociologist with the same, we were in the same uh, university, the same department, same program. And uh, we shared a lot of, uh, of course, uh, intellectual terrain. Uh, She was uh, a wonderful colleague and a fantastic uh, scholar as well, and she was interested uh, on the issues of, uh, uh initially islamization of knowledge and the islamic movement which also i was interested but also later on she became interested in studying uh, urban space uh, especially the cultural aspects of uh, urbanity and that's also an area where uh, i am interested yeah it's uh, it's extremely sad we lost yeah. her.
1: She will be dearly missed. Um, the, one of the reasons I'm um, mentioning her is um, I know that she shared this character- characteristic with you, which is the relentless pursuit of the subaltern, the marginalized, the poor, the precarious. Like um, the everyday the, uh, is very important to you. And it, it's it's amazing because... Um, to, with, with today's um, political science, it's all about the big issue, the macro, the macro politics, the macroeconomic uh, economics, uh, the the big Leviathan, the next Leviathan who will get uh, to be in control of the the next uh, revolution that happens in the, in the Middle East, and it's sad that everybody like it takes all the attention, and it's it's really sad and you were among was uh, one of those who um get to talk about every day all the time every like every single time something a big event happens as as you say in the badio sense of the term every time a rupture happens um you're the you're one of the ones who goes for the, to the little guy to see what he thinks or what she thinks about uh, the issue and that's amazing where does it come from though
0: yeah. Yeah, you're right. I mean, uh, <laughs> it's a very interesting question, you know, where it comes from. I suppose, I suppose that it, uh, you know, I think partially comes from my own sort of um, cultural and family background. You know, I, uh, as I said, I was uh, born in a very small village of 150 people. And um, almost everyone was illiterate, including my mother. My father was able to. Uh, read and write, and that's it. Uh, but uh, he uh, valued very much education, and, uh, and he really pushed us to uh, study. And uh, as I said, uh, in the village, uh, the school went up to fourth grade, and after uh, when I finished, uh, I, there was no school. So he uh, basically at a truck. He used to work during the daytime, and at night time, he would come and teach us, you know, some math and <laughs> some dictation and so forth. But he realized that you know we need also have a kind of formal education. He couldn't manage, you know, so that's why, as uh, they say in those days, uh, "muhajirat," uh, we migrated, we moved the entire family to uh, Tehran in a kind of a. Poor area of Tehran, the south, uh, where we settled. But at least we had uh, we had uh, a school, and so I mean this life experience uh, and the life of the poor and their aspirations and uh, uh, their dreams, uh, but especially their incredible sort of uh, uh, investment on children. Yeah because they wanted their children not to be like themselves. They wanted their children to be better, right? Yeah, but, move uh, up socially. I have to say that, you know, uh, absolutely. And uh, so they uh, invested on the ch- children and on education. And I think uh, education really played a very important part, uh, even if it was a lousy education, state run and so forth, but nevertheless, it was an important uh, you know, venue. So I think perhaps my sensitivity to the life of the subalterns of uh, as those people who are not really taken very seriously, you know, uh, often in academia, uh, and um, perhaps anthropology does, and, um, but others by and large um, do not take them seriously as, uh, uh, you know, important uh, agents of uh, social and political transformation. I think, so that maybe was one reason why I became very interested in uh, understanding their lives. But in particular, you know, for me, the central question, you know, from the very kind of start was how these, you know, people uh, uh, being under, uh, shall we say, uh, unfriendly economic uh, structures um, and, you um, for instance, more recent years, new liberal economies, authoritarian regimes. And so how are they able to you know, survive and make their uh, life better? And, uh, and, and in what way their doings, their activities, change their lives and uh, the surrounding societies in which they uh, operate and they live? So that was my central question, really. And uh, so that kind of led me first. My first actually PhD was, you know, uh, working on uh, the activities of uh, factory workers, uh, their role in the Iranian Revolution of 1979. So that was my kind of ser- first serious book. That was my PhD dissertation, which interestingly, <laughs> after so <laughs> many years, it has just recently been published in Persian. It had been oh my published God, in yeah. English. Uh, so. Oh, that's right. That was, I think 35 years ago or something. <laughs> but uh, only, yeah, only just, um, you know, a few months ago it was published in, in Iran. And then I followed, of course, you know, other uh, subaltern groups, uh, uh, you, know, um, you know, whether they are marginalized, uh, you know, youth and, and, and women and, uh, and, uh, and other, uh, you know, um, uh, groups um so in first in their day-to-day lives and of course the last uh latest book that i have uh, written and i suppose the subject of you know our conversation is and that was very important for me uh, how the everyday life is connected to big revolution how mundane yeah is connected to this monumental yeah how the ordinary is connected to this extraordinary so that was my main question and uh and through this book uh, i have tried to uh understand the relationship between the two yeah
1: because in uh, the, the the previous one the revolution without revolution is you went through the macro uh, space right like the you you talked about um, what happens when the regime changes when when big things happen and um so I, I'm guessing you needed to go back to the roots and see what hap what's happening there.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah. In fact, I think as I explained in the book, uh, in fact, I began really thinking about this book number two or the second volume, shall we say, first. That was my intention, but as I was, yeah, but that, as I was doing research about it and so on. And about these revolutions uh, in the Arab world, so the question uh, came to me, or rather, this uh, curious observation that these revolutions are pretty different from the ones that uh, you know I had uh, seen and uh, participated in and studied. And then, actually, that forced me to write the <laughs> uh, the first one. I mean, Revolution without Revolutionaries. Uh, in order to make sense of you know, you know these new happenings uh, historically and comparatively, and uh, so that that's where I took, uh, as you said, kind of a more macro political state centric centric view uh, to understand the meaning of those revolutions. Because I think that macro structural sort of approach is very much necessary. Uh, you know, it's definitely fundamentally significant for us to understand regime change matters yeah and the uh, uh, you know circulation of elites it matters uh, state ideology matters yeah uh, but these are not sufficient to for us to understand the entirety of you know revolution as a whole. that's why we have to go into the grassroots and the base of society underside of the societies see what happened on the ground. Absolutely. So this book, uh, Revolutionary
1: Life, The Every Day of the Arab Spring, which we are going to focus on today, um, it's from Harvard University Press and it came out in 2021. And that's in which you go to the grassroots, to, uh, to the people, to actually name them, which is, which is fantastic. You go um, uh, uh, into details of... Um, I have some names like uh, what amal Masluthi, the um, the great singer uh, did uh, on a certain day or um asma mahfouz um Munira Fakhru, Zainab al khawaja I'm, I'm, uh, I'm hoping i'm not uh, butchering any names um but yeah <laughs> so um you go you go through the names and that's also uh, a part of the book that i really like cuz you don't you, you don't just um Pretend the grassroots are important. You actually show that they are important, and they uh, on, on certain um, in certain moments, on certain days of the revolution, they they have done things or said things that managed to uh, like well, t- do stuff, you know, like um, to have some actual. Um, um, Let's say uh, follow up um, uh, in in the in the movement itself, um, which brings me to my uh, next question. When when you talk about the distinctive features of the Arab Spring, right? You call it revolution rather than revolution. Could you go um, uh, into some details and what difference there are between them and um, which one do you
0: think uh, was happening in the Arab Spring? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, just a bit of a comment about your you know, earlier uh, observation uh, about you know, naming names. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, of, co- of course, uh, I have names. I have named those who have been named uh, formally sometimes I made a kind of quotation from the interviews that they did or um, others but there were also others whom I did not uh, name because I didn't want uh, you know their identity to be known but actually give you know, gave them of course in you know academia and and um, you know gave them a kind of fictitious name yeah but nevertheless their voices are there of course I think their voices to me and they Kind of expression that they have is extremely important. Uh, You know, I would like to think that uh, that enriches really a narrative because it's so important in kind of academic narratives, usually dry and yeah, uh, like my first book, right? My my English was terrible at the time and really I wasn't very happy. But later on, I kind of learned, you know, uh, that uh, it's so important. Uh, And I wish, you know, I was a novelist, you know, uh, (laughs) to write. But I think at the same time, to me, it's very important to uh, chronicle uh, the, uh, you know, whatever, what happened. And to me, what happened really is significant rather than being my own imagination. Yeah. So therefore, observation becomes important and you have to go and see and talk to people and and observe. So to me, it was very important to give the narrative a life. Yeah. The life, color, smell, you know, all these, and uh, so that, that's that's uh, very significant. But uh, at the bigger level, uh, um, you know, the characterization of the revolution, or what I call the, you know, the new sort of twenty-first century uh, revolutions that I call the revolution with the F, uh, is. Uh, Precisely, this, in my view, sort of differentiates this new generation from the generation of the, you know, twentieth century or nineteen seventies, especially that at least I, you know, remember and I have observed. Um, so the, I think the earlier uh, revolutions. I think it is as famously, you know, written and observed by others as well. So uh, these were really somewhat fully fledged revolutionary movements in the sense of uh, the movements, uh, mass movements that uh, emerges. It has, uh, you know, certain uh, often charismatic you know, leadership that kind of represents uh, the revolution and uh, pretty, you know, good organization. for uh, yeah, I mean, um, uh, of course, vanguardism is a, you know, uh, you know. Sort of different kind of concept or more leninistic. Uh, it has a particular connotation. We can actually talk about it, uh, but uh, but uh, basic leadership, you know, like what happened in South Africa, for instance, under you know uh, Nelson Mandela, uh, and um, but also the organization and a certain degree of even you know uh, heart power. Uh, so that it builds up and pushes the incumbent uh, regime into either uh, negotiate for the transfer of power, you know, to the extent that it is possible peacefully, or if it is not, basically through an insurrection. And the result is a kind of significant transformation in the ideology, in the mode of governance of of the elites uh, uh, of uh, the new states, you know, of institutions of the new states. So there is a significant transformation, you know, of the state that has been pushed by the revolutionary movement, right? So often, you know, revolutionaries uh, basically come to power, you know, sometimes through elections, uh, uh, and uh, you know, other times uh, uh, as if that because they have. Done the revolution they have the political capital of seizing the state power, okay? The revolution, the new generation of revolutions were not like this. You had a, you know, uh, a really spectacular sort of mobilization that, you know, certain individuals and groups uh, were not necessarily charismatic, many of them, right? Spearheaded and uh, acted as kind of local sort of leaders and coordinators, and uh, and uh, managed to mobilize this spectacular movement. uh, And often happened in the urban uh, spaces. Uh, Of course, there were a lot of rural people as well, but the manifestation became more pronounced in the squares, like Maidan Tahrir or uh, or. arribaba you know a boulevard and so forth and uh, so you know in other words these revolutionary movements they were revolutionary movements right uh, that emerged to compel to force the incumbent regimes to reform themselves on behalf of revolution rather than you know the revolutionary movements emerging to take the state power and change it it wasn't it wasn't you know, they didn't mean, in fact, to <laughs> take power. They wanted to see that the regime itself somewhat you know, transformed, somewhat kind of reformed huh? through elections and so on and so forth. And that I think differentiated because it had uh, consequences for the outcome.
1: Absolutely, but um, wasn't it mostly through the like the start of it, like the begin at the beginning of it, they they, they were not thinking of actually um, uh, dethroning Hosni Mubarak. they say the the new pharaoh, right? But. Um, but to- towards the end, when when it goes uh, and like when when they are they are in Tahrir Square and the police comes with camels and actually hits them or I don't know uh, uh, tramples them, something changes, right? Like some something changes in the space that makes makes the dis- distinction between revolution and revolution, right? I mean, it. it yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah
0: yeah uh so yes uh, that's very important actually to also think of the dynamics uh, of uh, you know a uh, you know revolutionary uh, movement so yeah at the beginning of course uh, you, you know if you want to talk about egyptian i think we should first talk about you know the tunisian because they were the first right and i think that affected tunisian right uh, you know, so as we know that basically that began with the self-immolation of uh, of um, Mohammed Bouazizi in Sidi Bouzid. Of course, there had been uh, there had been protests in the past, right? In the past decades, yeah, in different cities, uh, especially in mining areas and so forth. So, but that did not lead to the kind of uprisings that we saw. It happened in 2010, right? In in, in Tunisia. So, so it, the trigger was, you know, self-immolation of Mohammed Bouazizi and the involvement of uh, relatives, friends, and the people who were yeah. close to Snowballing him, and from the trade unionists. Uh, uh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, as such, there wasn't, you know, to my understanding, uh, you know, people who had been planned you know to overthrow <laughs> the regime exactly as far as i know it wasn't like this yet. yeah maybe some individuals had right Probably. but this didn't happen because they had planned and they acted upon exactly it, right? exactly uh, those people of course got you know involved in it, yeah and then with this happened and uh, we know the story and the you know um, uh, the uh ben ali you know frees the country and it is declared that you know revolution has happened so this is a time that Egyptians also, the Arabs basically watching you know, what was happening, <laughs> yeah? And the uh, Egyptians, to my understanding, they had uh, activists had already organized, yeah? Um, on the 25th of January, which was a police day to, uh, to protest the uh, police brutality with respect to the torture of uh, a man, young man called Khaled Said. So that was their plan. But when this happened, you know, know, Tunisia happened, and the concept of revolution, Thaura, became prominent, they they decided they actually used also the term Thaura, whereas revolution later. Uh, But uh, in fact, a, a number of activists were telling me that they were not expecting, you know, so many people to come, uh, you know, on the oh,
1: street. yeah. So everybody uh, was shocked. A lot of
0: them, you know, activists, shocked, including, you know, the protagonists and activists <laughs> themselves. Yeah. 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 And uh, because earlier, you know, I had been, you know, I had lived in Egypt and in Cairo, and then my university uh, was right there in Medan Tahrir, American University. And I have observed, yeah. How the activists would mobilize and how many people, you know, two, three thousand maybe people maximum would come. But this time was uh, different. But you're right, when it happened, when this the tens of thousands, you know, came, uh, you know, to Medan Tahrir and then it flared up in other cities, right? In Alexandria and Asyut, and other places. Yeah, in other places. Then they had to think, you know, what to do, <laughs> what do we want, yeah, <laughs> what do you want, yeah, yeah, what's next in terms of responding to, you know, certain slogans that are coming from the ordinary people, masses, you know, uh, you know, people, yeah, people want to overthrow of the regime. But then the question, of course, for us is what does that mean, overthrow of the regime? Uh, for a lot of people, overthrow of the regime really meant that Mubarak should go, right? Uh, so in other words, the downfall of Mubarak was as if that it was the, uh, you know, the overthrow of the regime. Of course, regime included, you know, the uh, mode of governance of it and the elites and the institutions that supported it. It so included intelligence service, uh, yeah, and the army and uh, you know the machines of power the military, the ruling party, so uh, that's, that was the issue, yeah, um, and, uh, you know, it was, um, so when Mubarak, you know, stepped down, for a lot of people, uh, uh, it appeared as if that, go well, we won the revolution, yeah, but of course, this wasn't really the case, and we know, you know what happened. The military, uh, Supreme Council of uh, the Armed Forces basically took over yeah. the governance yeah. to to guide for a you know transition. But uh, ended up actually making a coup against an elected government. Yeah,
1: exactly. Um, in part of the book, uh, you mentioned Gramsci, and it reminded me of um, you know Mark Mark Levine, um, the, the the American historian. He he was there. He was in Egypt. He was he has a lot of friends there. He, he when he came back to the, um, our university in Sweden, he, he he said something amazing. He said um, if Gramsci were there. If Gramsci had been in their entire square uh, he would be going around saying I told you I told you guys see this is this is what I was talking about and and you also mentioned him you also mentioned uh, Gramsci and you you say we can learn from him can you can you go to a little bit of details about that what can we actually learn from Gramsci there yeah
0: so I think uh, you know the major. I think uh, as far as you know our discussion is concerned, the yeah. major. I mean Gramsci has made contributions. <laughs> exactly. Of many fields, right? Exactly. <laughs> but, <laughs> right. <laughs> but as far as our you know uh, um, discussion is concerned with respect to revolution or uh, revolution, is that uh, uh, you know uh, he uh, I think brought in. The role of uh, the civil society, yeah, civil society uh, into um, the realm of uh, the discussion for revolutionary change, you know, as you know, distinct from you know Leninist type, yeah, Vanguardist. So the I think problem, of course, with the Vanguardism is, is that it, um, uh, it of course. Uh, Consists of you know certain uh, intellectuals right uh, who largely lead yeah uh, and uh, want to raise the consciousness you know of the uh, ordinary people to make them in uh, some way uh, revolutionary right and uh, they by and large you know represent and negotiate on the, on behalf of the masses. So there isn't much of a kind of input, uh, you know, from below. Um, and um, so, but, but Gramsci was different. I mean, I think uh, he, for for him, grassroots, subaltern, you know, uh, uh, their role within the civil society uh, was very significant in uh, revolutionary uh, change. However, what I can say also is, um, not necessarily critically, but, uh, uh, somewhat kind of uh, a matter of clarification is that Gramsci, uh, his ideas was very much pertinent to the uh, social, political, and cultural reality of Europe. Yeah. Uh, his idea was that uh, what happened in Russia in, uh, you know, uh, 1917, Bolshevik Revolution, or what you called uh, the seizure of power and seizure of the state uh, or frontal attack uh, cannot really happen in Europe. Yeah. And um, because, yeah, exactly. Uh, Especially in advanced, uh, you know, capitalist countries in, in Europe, say in Germany or England and so on, because, yeah, because the, you know, civil society and uh, state was so much yeah, yeah, state was so much present in civil society and uh, so you couldn't just well of course they would come and play a role so what is significance therefore we should you know uh, in some way revolutionize the civil society and in this fashion bring about significant changes and of course from this theory of course Eurocommunism emerges, yeah. Eurocommunism emerges uh, as opposed to vanguardism of uh, Lenin. But my argument, also, I think I mentioned uh, in the first chapter of the book that uh, uh, insurrection or frontal atta- uh, frontal uh, attack, what he does uh, Gramsci's term. I think still is valid. Uh, uh, in non, uh, perhaps according to him European societies, in the Middle East because it happened, right. There are insurrection, yeah, uh, and yet uh, I think it's important to acknowledge the role that uh, you know various segments of the population, subaltern groups, men, women, young people, even children, and elderly, so sort of played in bringing uh, you know uh, the uprising to a point where it managed to actually compel, you, you know, the uh, uh, abdication of certain rulers, like Mubarak, or, or, or uh, yeah. Ben Ali, and, yeah. and, and, and others, yeah, yeah. Uh, Gaddafi and others. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. excellent, thank you. Um, uh, Professor, um, for people who know you and have read your books, there's a thread of um, Important concepts, which you uh, you insist on, and uh, but sometimes I feel like the, there are no nuances on them. But um, you insist on people listening to these um, changes, these small changes, or observing them more carefully. If that's okay with you, can we go through a couple of them and you tell me what it means to you? Or if there are any differences in your uh, understanding of them, uh, that also would be nice to know. So uh, we went through the subaltern uh, a little bit, but uh, one of uh, the key concepts uh, for you is non-movements. Right, like um, uh, like everyday life uh, in everyday life of uh, people. When you don't see anything on 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 TV or or the radio or I don't know France 24, CNN showing anything, there is something happening. There's a movement happening, but because it's a different way of it, you call it non movement. And as I said, you 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 wouldn't hear it on CNN or right?
0: anything. Yes, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> I think perhaps. Uh i think probably uh, one of the um, shall i say uh, the advantages or shall i say the powerpoint in some way of non movement is because it is so um how should i put it uh, not visible invisible invisible capturable exactly not visible, not exactly yeah,
1: exactly.
0: yeah. Uh, it's like steam, right? It's like steam. It's kind of very flexible. It goes everywhere, but it's very difficult to capture it. Yeah, yeah? yeah, yeah. Just capture it. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, this notion of non-movement, uh, of course, uh, I talked in the earlier books, especially uh, in the book Life as Politics. Life as Politics, yeah. Uh, when, uh, when I was trying to understand the kind of agency and activism of uh, ordinary people Uh, uh, under difficult circumstances of economic, political, cultural, uh, uh, or even moral. Uh, And um, so I developed this idea uh, initially with respect to the activities of the poor people, urban poor, how they manage their lives. For instance, uh, they migrate to the cities and Take over, you know, certain lands here or housing, and then they get electricity and, and the water, and then they build, uh, you know, roads and so forth. Uh, largely extra legally, largely extra legally or I- illegally, yeah, and uh, so at the end of uh, you know you know ten years, twenty years, they build a community, right? Yeah. So I called, you know, initially I called you know, those activities in terms of the quiet encroachment of the ordinary people. Encroaching, that is, on the property and powerful uh, people. And because it is towards power, exactly, kind of, it is a economically, it is a way to redistribute, right? Uh, either uh, goods, uh, housing, land, uh, or opportunities, right? Uh, and uh, so and and because you know it is an encroachment uh, yeah, then uh, it causes conflict uh, and in this sense it is political because the other sides adversaries whether property holders or the municipality uh, officials or the state the response yeah response yeah. and uh, so people are doing this largely you know on the family basis individually and so on but uh, there is a connection uh, between them. It's a kind of a connective movement, uh, if not collective uh, movement. That's why later on I formulated in terms of uh, the um, collective action of uh, non-collective uh, actors, and they are dispersed people, and yet they are doing similar uh, but contentious things. Yeah, uh, This was the poor, and then I sort of uh, extended that analysis into activities of women. Yeah, for instance, uh, in Iran, you know, there's a struggle about certain, well, a large number of women who do not want to go through forced veiling. Yeah, forced veiling. Yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, and they resist, uh, but they see each other on the street. That you know, she's doing the same. I'm doing the same, and so on. There's a connection between them. Yeah. Uh, to me, their daily activities in resisting and trying to um, through direct actions, in fact, to push back their, their hijab uh, is a non movement. What the other way around in France, muhajime woman, you know. Who do want, in fact, <laughs> against the, against the authorities, that, etc., uh, etc. Et right, exact opposite, but the method is similar, and I think that also constitutes a non-movement. This is what I'm co- saying: non-movement. It's happened on an everyday basis. It's not audible, uh, but uh, what I've tra- tried to do in this book, especially, try to see, okay what the role of these non-movements were in these uprisings. Because this was a key question that after the revolution, a lot of journalists and uh, activists and academics were asking me. And uh, and I didn't know the answer at the time. I had felt that uh, you know these non-movements, when the opportunity comes, when uh, they are very likely to turn into uh, social movements, that is, to generate uh, a conscious sort of relationship with one another, and generate a uh, you know audible collective, yeah, and uh, merge into bigger movements that might have uh, created by protagonists uh, and others, yeah, like in the uprisings. So yeah. this uh, can, like kind to of that kind that of like yeah
1: kind of fire under the ash I mean it's ready ready and it, it's usually <laughs> waiting it's for a, like a
0: spark yeah. <laughs> something yeah. like this something like this exactly I think because non movements by and large you know keep people pretty mobilized because constantly yeah. they are they yeah, are doing yeah. something and they are in conflict and they are trying to extend their life chances and they are receiving sort of, uh, you know, uh, reactions from the adversary. So they are constantly in mobilization in some way, but in a very quiet fashion, yes.
1: Yeah, you can, you can write volumes of books uh, on what people um, discuss politically in, in taxis, you know, <laughs> just because, I mean, like foreigners don't know exactly. that, <laughs> like Westerners don't know that taxis are yeah. collective places, you know, they, they, they take one person, one taxi, but for us, it's like a space, it's like a, a social space, Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, yeah. Excellent, yeah. thank you. Well, uh, the other one, the, the next one uh, I really liked in your book, uh, the, the concept of the precariat, you go through that, and it's it's amazing because uh, in the old times it was the proleta- proletarian, right? The proletarian, the proletariat yes. Was, yes. was this um, idea of like the – the, the, the mechanic with a, with a hammer in his hand, right? But the precariat is much more inclusive and much more up-to-date, I, I suppose. So, so if you um, mind, please, uh, yeah, go through that. Sure, sure. Sure. Uh,
0: but uh, the concept of precariat is not uh, originally mine, yeah? It's not. It's uh, actually, uh, uh, I think... Uh, Maybe I don't know who uh, coined it, but the guy standing uh, who is a political economist, uh, he actually wrote a book on precariat, yeah. and uh, he referred to the changing sort of uh, uh, you know dynamics of labor market in uh, the Western countries in particular, uh, and uh, how uh, in the earlier times when, you had a good degree of job security and perks and so forth, uh, you know, supported also by unions uh, and so forth. These things really have changed. And uh, um, and now these people, even the educated ones, are pretty pre- precarious, yeah? And he called, you know, these emerging uh, thing precarious. Uh, but actually... Uh, I talk about a somewhat similar, but also different phenomenon in the context of the countries of the Middle East and maybe in other countries of the global South as well. I call them middle class poor. Oh, you they love that. I love poor. that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that is a, uh, it, is, it is like a class now in the sense that it, it continues to persist and there is some degree of uh, identity formation among these. So these are, this is the class that, uh, uh, you know, largely has educational capital, yeah? Educational yeah. capital, a lot of them have been to university and so on, and it was a knowledge capital. You know, they know what is happening in the world. Uh, they are very well versed in uh, the uh, in a world of sort of um, you know, activism and uh, and uh, and uh, education and the internet and so on and so forth. Uh, however, economically, uh, the situation has forced them and compelled them to live the lives of the poor of the traditional poor uh, in the squatter settlements in informal communities or being uh, uh you know in precarious jobs uh, like taxi driving or uh, uh or casual uh jobs in even the informal worse uber driving schools. or, or something
1: yeah
0: or something like a variety of them yeah 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 uh, so and and that sort of um, you know this uh in some way duality this this um awareness on their part that they sort of deserve to be better and have better than what they have or are, uh, you know, give them this incredible moral outrage. And uh, I think they become very significant uh, political uh, players. Yeah, Uh, And I think they have played a very significant part, you know, in the Arab revolution also, the Iranian uprisings in recent years, yeah? Yeah. A couple of years ago. We, yeah. we have
1: had um, uh, a few of those in Iran, like um, movements that uh, didn't change much in the macro space, but uh, like macroeconomics, macro, macro um, politics, but they've had immense. Um, change they, they 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 have made radical change in the minds of the people who have until very recently were um, were happy with their reformers and reformists and uh, the likes of uh, katami or um others uh, other reformers but now are just just beyond it beyond it they, they, they're just not taking it anymore for the like price uh, yeah a, a gouging price uh, a price of the fuel they go to the streets the, that's and right. other yeah that's
0: right. that's right
1: that's right yeah oh yeah yeah sorry no i was just going to uh, just uh, like uh, as a continuation of what you were saying i was going to read yeah. read a little yeah. part of part of your book uh, just a little little um, okay. um, part of this uh, which is which i find fantastic and it uh, says a lot about um uh, your over of work, like all your work. And, and um, it says, I'm not beginning from the beginning of the sentence, but it's on page 113, if anybody wants to see it. The story of revolution is thus not just about regime change, however significant that may be. It is also about what happened in the underside among the grassroots in the everyday. It is about what the revolution meant to the ordinary people and how they partook in revolutionary dynamics. I, I love this. I, I I feel like that is what is missing usually from situations like that. Uh,
0: very true. I think uh, I think um, I mean the you see the relationship between grassroots ordinary people underside and revolution by and large remained unexplored. Yeah, uh, both. Uh, in the revolutionary, lit- I mean, literature on revolution and also literature on everyday life. As I have very sort of uh, t- tried to show in the first chapter that these two have different, uh, you know, literature of their own, different studies, even different like academic departments. You know, everyday life basically is studied in anthropology or in, um, you know, gender studies, women's studies, revolution basically either in history or political science, yeah? Uh, And even sociology does not really study much, uh, you know, revolution. They do more social movements and so forth. So there is a kind of desperate uh, literature and approaches. And uh, so therefore, you know, academically, we see this separation between Uh, you know, different genre of uh, literature. I've tried to bring these two together through the analysis of uh, the Arab uh, uprising because, as you read, I think the story of uh, revolution will remain incomplete uh, if it only uh, focuses on the regime change or transformation of the uh, state. Uh, And it needs to actually look at What happens on the underside of the society, uh, what happens to the grassroots, to women, young people, the poor people, uh, ethnic minorities, uh, and so on. Uh, uh, And uh, because, first of all, I mean, they have been very significant in bringing the uprisings into fruition, but especially in post-uprising times. you know, there's a lot of activities going on on the part of these grassroots in their localities, which I have tried to actually chronicle, you know, in the farms, in factories, in families, you know, yeah. in the universities, in the neighborhoods. And Bazaars. Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
1: Amazing. So that takes me to the next question, which I, I believe for a lot of younger generation who would uh, read your book is is the question and that is uh, so what next right like um uh, a lot of these uh, non-movements turn into movements tend to turn into uh uprisings and sometimes turn into revolutions and uh, every part of my language every damn time somebody comes in co-opts some of some parts of it and uh, takes power in hand and says well you know we can change like um they they introduce what you, what you um, and some others call state feminism for example right they introduce some sort of uh, measures for distribute redistribution of wealth and like the, when, when there's the fervor the, the 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 revolutionary fervor in in the air they promise uh, heavens right but after some time, people see okay, the same story, same uh, same old wine, well, cheap wine in in, in a new in a new <laughs> bottle. So, so, um, yes, yes, yes. so what's next for young younger generation? We don't have we don't have much time. I mean, I, I I'm talking about the podcast, but we also don't have much time in the world with the, with the things that are happening to
0: the ecology. We don't have much time. So, what do we do? Yes, yeah, you're right. I mean, uh, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's a big question. I mean, it, it's, um, yeah. I mean, especially you know with respect to the current uh, uh, revolutions, I think it's very important uh, for the subaltern groups. Shall we say the young people who a lot of them, uh, you know, took part uh, bravely in the revolutions, whether men or women, uh, and. Uh, on the morrow of revolution, that is, on the you know after the sort of uprising stops and normality comes back, uh, by and large, you know the elders, those people who are more entrenched, uh, basically took over, right, and uh, it really generated kind of a generational even gap, you know, uh, between the you know younger generation who had been protagonists and those who are in power, they were basically elders, older people who have a different vision and so forth. And uh, one significant consequence of this, especially in Tunisia, was a very early and even, I would say, dangerous disenchantment that the young people and also the poor had with respect to the you know, politicians and elections and parliament and press. You see what I mean? Is uh, So th- that's really a, a big problem. Uh, I think it's very important for a post-revolutionary time uh, uh, in the government, and here is the role and I think significance of the top here, to have an ally, yeah, to have an ally. Uh, the poor people having an ally at the top, right? So that they can actually lobby and work for, for the interests of the poor people, yeah, who are already active, yeah, uh, on uh, the grassroots level, in the farms and the factories and so on and so forth, yeah. Uh, but uh, neither, I think, in Egypt. Uh, yeah, I mean, to uh, take, you know, um, uh, you know, take the concerns of those constituencies very seriously. Uh, at the legal level, yeah, at the policy level, yeah, this, you know, broad policy level, and this really didn't exist, I think, in the uh, revolutions, yeah, uh, and um, uh, so so that, you know, made them very uh, disappointed and disenchanted, uh, which is very, I think, uh, dangerous, um, but, you know, young people uh, have, in some way, uh, continued at the grassroots levels, I mean, a good number of them have been very disappointed and enchanted and exited you know from politics and uh, you know chosen exile and so forth. But there are still others who you know try to you know make changes. But at the largely uh, local level, what has remained, however, that they have an experience of a big transformation, big change, and that is uh, I think very significant. They had experience, you know for some even fleeting time, a kind of taste of freedom and taste of being in charge of things. You know what I mean. And I think that memory, I think remains. That experience remains. And I think uh, the you know can inform, yeah, them and their children. And I think this is how really change really takes place uh, uh, gradually. Yeah. And that can affect you know the stakeholders and so forth. Yeah. Um, even uh, I on a side I really like saying sorry. that. Please, please. It just, I just want to finish with this. That even I can go further. Even in those regimes that uh, have had the coup and uh, you know restoration and counter revolution and so on, even those regimes cannot uh, ignore. Yeah, cannot simply dismiss uh, the uh, continuing demands and concerns of. Uh, the revolution, and in some way uh, they have to respond, you know, to it. Um, you know, and that's why sometimes, on the one hand, they want to get rid of revolution, the word revolution, and disparage it. But they, on the other hand, these regimes have been profoundly affected by those very, uh, you know, bottom-up uh, revolutions in their policies.
1: Yeah, at at the very least, they have to be on on their toes uh, from now on. Like they have they have to listen to some of the <laughs> complaints. Yeah, on the side, I really like that you 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 put it in the in the uh, framework of alienation because it it really seems. Because uh, I was there in uh, twenty ten in Iran and. I was in the streets and I saw it. it's 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 amazing that you call it alienation because it is exactly alienation because the the work is being done by by the younger generation and the 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 benefit goes to some somebody else right somebody who is already yeah 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 it's amazing that you call it that it it is the the quintessential definition of uh, alienation actually so no no wonder that most younger generations are alienated um, absolutely amazing amazing thank you professor um, uh, is there a part of the book that we missed and you would really like to put out
0: well you were so thorough and you were so <laughs> comprehensive you Uh, observation and discussion that really, I think you uh, uh, really highlighted uh, perhaps some of the most important, you know, aspects uh, of the book and its, uh, you know, uh, orientation. Uh, So I want to thank you for, uh, you know, uh, following the discussion so thoroughly. I appreciate that. My
1: pleasure. My pleasure, sir. And uh, what's next for Professor Bayad? What are you working on right now?
0: Oh dear. (laughs) (laughs) This is interesting. I'm actually, I have, yeah, I've worked, I've been very preoccupied with (laughs) the Arab Revolution for the past maybe 12 years or so. And uh, maybe I will kind of finish that by uh, writing about, I think, an article on counter revolution and the new regimes and in what way. They have been affected by the revolution, despite the fact that they are uh, they want to disavow, you know, uh, the revolution, and yet they are embracing. There's a, a interesting contradictions that you know they have. I want to do that, uh, but then uh, you know my hope is that uh, uh, I would like to work more on Iran. Yeah. Go back. I used to work a lot on Iran, yeah. and uh, uh, and uh, I have a. Um, uh, you know, a project that uh, very much personal to me myself, and I want to pursue that Amazing. in the remaining years.
1: Amazing, very good, very good. Thank you very much, Professor, for the time, for making time for this book and for writing these books. So obviously, they have they have had immense um, effect on me, and I'm pretty sure I know actually, you know, there's um, many people who have the same um, impression of your books. Thank you for all you've done.
0: Thank you so much again for uh, having me in your program. I very much enjoyed uh, having a nice conversation with you. My pleasure,
1: fl- my pleasure, sir. Okay, goodbye.